This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zuma Radio, AM 740. And welcome to the Audio Imaginarium. Come on in, weary traveler. Hang your cloak on a peg. Grab a stool and come warm yourself by the fire. There are stories to be told and you are among friends. Uh, the Pentagon Papers and the Spielberg Hanks Myth-Making Movie, The Post... Uh, is in Hour 1. Assassination researcher James Eugenio will be along shortly to discuss. Hour 2, award-winning remote viewer Igor Grigich will join us to talk about associative remote viewing. Uh, before all that, I have to tell you, uh, I was visiting uh, my mom in Brantford this past weekend. Not the Brantford in the new Jumanji movie. The fictional Brantford. I took my boys to see that, and <laughs> I'd forgotten in the original one, when, one with Robin Williams, it takes place in Brantford, New Hampshire, which is a fictional town. But I come from, I hail from the only original Brantford, Brantford, Ontario. So I was there this past weekend, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, uh, with the, the boys uh, to visit mom. And I, um, through Facebook, I reconnected with some of my old, uh, my, I shouldn't say old, my fellow students from my middle school back in Brantford, Woodman Drive, a public school, some of whom I hadn't seen in 40 years, uh, including our beloved uh, grade 8 teacher, Mr. Gary Prince, who was one of these, uh, you know, this is back in 1977, had long hair and a beard and, and rode a motorcycle uh, and was into like, tropical fish and biology and he was just an amazing larger than life uh, teacher and we all loved him and um, I have to thank Brad Gross uh, who organized the get-together at this historic place in Brantford called the Brantford Club it was it's it been around a long time uh, well over a hundred years originally it was one of these hoity-toity men only clubs but it's obviously uh, since moved on and and uh, all all are uh, welcome um, here's the, uh, the interesting thing. Uh, Winston Churchill, they brought out this guest book, uh, under glass, and Winston Churchill was, had signed the guest book. He had visited there in 1901. 1901. 
he was 24 years of age, and uh, the walls are adorned with a number of uh, Winston Churchill paintings. Anyway, a great time, a lot of reminiscing. Uh, our grade 8 teacher was in fine storytelling form, and I just wanted to say hello to Brad Gross again and thank him, and also to uh, uh, Bruce McIntosh and Yvonne Brack and my old buddy David Garkett and uh, Jerry Draper. Uh, again, a wonderful time. We'll have to do it again sometime. Let me quickly introduce the uh, the boys in the band on the other side of the glass on the Flying V, Gibson Guitar. Technical producer Ian Robertson is here, here in the studio on the Rickenbacker bass guitar and occasionally the theremin. My story producer, Albert Vinzel. And finally on the Hammond B3 and kettle drums. Did you know you play the kettle drums? You probably didn't know that, Ryan, but I've added that. <laughs> He's our YouTube live stream producer and our feature producer. Uh, yes, Ryan White. Uh, just a reminder, we are streaming live on YouTube. Check it out. The YouTube channel is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. And please, uh, take a moment and hit the sub button. We are at, I believe, 6,800 subscribers. Just about spot on, 6,800, and trying to get to 10,000. Also, just a reminder, my new podcast, Conspiracy Unlimited. Conspiracy Unlimited. New episodes drop every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. Uh, not sure if you had a chance to see the movie The Post, uh, the Steven Spielberg picture starring Tom Hanks and Meryl Streep about the Washington Post's involvement handling of the famous Pentagon Papers. These were the uh, classified top secret. Um, it, it was a study commissioned by, I believe, Robert McNamara at the Defense Department looking at the political uh, involvement, political motivations behind the war in Vietnam. And from uh, right from like the, the late 40s all the way up until about 1968, and uh, those, uh, that study was leaked. You know, long before Edward Snowden, there was a, um, another whistleblower by the name of uh, Ellsberg, Daniel Ellsberg. And he leaked this document uh, to the, uh, the New York Post and, uh, and other newspapers. And was facing, uh, a rather, he was charged under the Espionage Act and was facing something like 115 years. Uh, didn't serve any time, but we'll get into that, as it turns out. Um, however, this film, The Post, you know, it's getting a lot of good reviews. Uh, but James Eugenio has uh, written a lengthy review, not particularly glowing. Uh, he says it is, surprise, surprise, just another case of Hollywood myth-making, and we're going to get into that this hour. Jim Eugenio, good friend of the show, the author of Destiny Betrayed, about the Garrison investigation of the Kennedy assassination. Uh, that came out back in 2012. And then Reclaiming Parkland, published in 2013, reissued and expanded in uh, 2016, which offers a detailed, critical examination of the Warren Commission's evidence and conclusions, along with an analysis of the CIA's influence in Hollywood. He's also the co-author and editor of the Assassinations, Probe Magazine on JFK, MLK, RFK, and Malcolm X. He co-edited Probe Magazine from 1993 to 2000, was a guest commentator on the anniversary issue of the film JFK, released by Warner Brothers in 2013, and he has an MA in Contemporary American History from California State University, Northridge, also a specialist in the history and theory of cinema, and has written numerous film reviews, Jim Eugenio, welcome back. How are you, my friend? Good evening, Richard. 
And if you could, just in a few moments, Jim, just bring uh, people up to speed uh, on the Pentagon Papers, because it's been almost 50 years uh, since they were released. The Pentagon Papers that were, I guess, officially called United States-Vietnam Relations, 1945 to 1967. So explain what they were, and then take a few moments and talk about who Daniel Ellsberg is. Okay. This is, you have to differentiate, when people say the Pentagon Papers, there's really three things they're talking about. The actual history called the Pentagon Papers, the Supreme Court case in which the New York Times and Washington Post had to go to court to publish parts of them, and then the criminal trial that Nixon and Mitchell held against Daniel Ellsberg and Tony Russo in Los Angeles. Now, what you just asked me, that's where we should start. What were the Pentagon Papers, and why was all this hubbub about them? In 1967, Defense Secretary Robert McNamara decided that the Vietnam War was a lost cause. Even though he was Secretary of Defense, he would literally spend days crying in his office you know, into, into a curtain, all right? And in November of that year, he wrote Johnson, President Johnson, a memo saying, we have to have peace here. And since Johnson didn't buy that, of course, he ushered McNamara out the door and brought in a new Secretary of Defense, Clark, Clark Clifford. But earlier in that year, In June of 1967, McNamara had commissioned an encyclopedic massive study of the entire history of the Vietnam War, going all the way back to 1945. And it was going to trace American involvement. In other words, how the heck did we ever get in this mess? All right? And why can't we get out? And McNamara said very quickly at the start, I want it to be objective. I want it to be complete. I will not, I will not say one word either way about its completion. And he, and he right? had this from Johnson. He didn't tell Johnson, correct? Well, wait a minute. Wait, I was just going to get to that. He classified it top secret. And one of the reasons he classified it top secret was to keep it from Johnson, all right? So he never found out about it, okay? Because he knew that if Johnson found out about it, it'd get terminated, all right? And so there was three people in charge of the project. John McNaughton, Assistant Secretary of Defense, Morton Halperin, his first deputy, and the guy who ran it on a day-to-day on a day-to-day supervision operation, was Leslie Gelb. And Gelb always said, I had no problems getting documents. All I had to do was say, McNamara wants us to do this. You know? And it ended up being the complete set of this very long 7,000-page encyclopedia was 49 volumes long. All right, and believe me, when I say it was complete, it was really complete. And there were many, many, many documents uh, 
in that encyclopedia that really exposed, the number one thing it did is it exposed the utter hypocrisy and deception of almost all the administrations, but especially Johnson's administration, because he's the one who actually escalated the war. Right. What were some beyond of the, where it had been before. What were some of the key findings? Well, to, gi- to gi- give you an example, one of the more interesting things is that this was one of the early, early times where the whole thing about the Gulf of Tonkin incident mm-hmm. was exposed. In other words, I guess I should explain that, right? The yeah, Gulf of Tonkin this, incident. 1964. Okay. This is the, okay. this the, is the pretext for the war. incident was an inc- an, a naval incident that took place in August of 1964, during which the administration, that is Johnson's administration, said that two American destroyers had been attacked on the high seas. All right? And this happened on, out of three nights, it happened two out of the three nights, and Johnson used what he said were these attacks to go ahead and pass the Gulf of Tonkin resolution through the Senate, which ended up, he used it for a declaration of war against North Vietnam. And in fact, he immediately attacked North Vietnam with, I believe, 65 air sorties in about 24 hours. And this, for all intents and purposes, this was the beginning of America's war, where America actually began to take over the war. Johnson said that it was the North Vietnamese who were the aggressors, that the United States ships were in neutral waters, okay, and that the United States ships were only on normal patrol duties. Well, it turned out that every one of those statements was wrong, all right, every single one of them. And Johnson was disguising the fact that the Gulf of Tonkin, those patrols, were meant as, in many ways, provocations. And this was part of a plan that Johnson wanted to escalate the war, all right, as the president, as, as once he became president in his own right, that is, once he won the election of 19th. And that's another thing that the Pentagon Papers exposed. We'll get into that in a moment, Jim. Let me just jump in. We'll take a time out. Come back. James D. Eugenio, assassination researcher, kennedysandking.com, the website. Check it out. We're talking about the Pentagon Papers. More in a moment right here on The Conspiracy Show. Curiosity, or did the devil make you do it? Whatever the reason, welcome back to The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. The truth is not out there. It's right here. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio. 
Welcome back. Jim DiEugenio is here, assassination researcher. Kennedysandking.com, the website. We're talking about the Pentagon Papers and this new uh, Spielberg myth-making uh, movie called The Post. And uh, this has to do with the, the Washington Post, Ben Bradley uh, and Kathleen Graham, publisher, and their role in um, the... Um, Bringing the Pentagon Papers uh, to uh, to the fore, however, as as we'll see, this is was nothing more than myth making. But right now, we're just talking about what the Pentagon Papers were. So, which is what's interesting is McNamara, uh, who was also Kennedy's defense secretary. But there was a lot of things that were very damning to the Kennedy assassination or Kennedy administration as well. Why would he have wanted that? Revealed because I mean obviously the Kennedy Kennedy administration was involved some way in the overthrow the coup of South Vietnam's uh, president Diem and, and his assassination. Why would why would um, McNamara want all that revealed? Well, I think there's two reasons. Okay, number one, he really never wanted to escalate the war, as uh, Frederick Logovall says in his very good study, uh, Choosing War, McNamara, McNamara did what he did because that's what Johnson wanted him to do. And he felt like, I'm the Secretary of Defense. I have to carry out whatever president says I should do. He never seriously thought of resigning until 1967. All right? When he realized that this was all just a terrible, terrible mistake, you know, and that Johnson had reversed Kennedy's withdrawal plan, you know, and it had absolutely horrendous results. I think the other reason, you know, number one being that he never really wanted to do this, really. Okay, the other reason is that before Kennedy was assassinated, all right, he had told a couple of people, that when I get back from Dallas, we're going to review this whole situation in Vietnam. We're going to go all the way back to the beginning. And I'm going to ask everybody the question, you know, why should we stay there? You know, because he was was at that point already. But what he was disappointed in was that most of his advisors were not. So one way to look at this is that McNamara was completing the arc that Kennedy himself was going to do if he had not been assassinated. You know, it's a very, very interesting question, and I'm really glad you asked it, because the film doesn't go into it at all. And in fact, the film completely distorts McNamara. That's one of the worst things about the movie. And we will get into that. In the film, do you want me to go into that now? No, we'll we'll get into the film in a moment, because we we just need to explain who Daniel Ellsberg was. But before that, I mean, one of the things that came out was that that this wasn't about the United States helping their friend South Vietnam. This was about a larger larger policy of containing China. And, I mean, that would have cost... I mean, probably, you know, more lives than the, the Second World War. It, it would have been... Well, there's a very famous paragraph in the Pentagon Papers. It might be one of the most famous paragraphs in, in, the, whole, in the whole 49 volumes, where McNaughton, McNamara's deputy, says words to the effect in 1967, why are we in still in Vietnam? Number one, 70% to contain China... No, no, no. No, get this. 
10% to try and save the country, 20% to try and contain China, 70% to avoid a humiliating defeat. Hmm. Do you believe that? This is the Assistant Secretary of Defense admitting that the major reason we're there, 90% of it, is to avoid a humiliating defeat and try and contain China. We're only, it's ten, only 10%. You know, to, to try and help the Vietnamese people. All right, so now we That's enter... right in the Pentagon Papers. Right. Now we enter <laughs> RAND, uh, Rand uh, employee, military analyst, Daniel Ellsberg. Take us, uh, take us to, to, okay. to Daniel. Ellsberg is a very interesting character, uh, and it's very shameful that he's only in the movie for like maybe 15 minutes, all right? Because if it wasn't for him, none of this ever would have happened. Daniel Ellsberg spent three years in the Marines in the mid-1950s, graduated from Harvard, and was actually a hawk in the 1950s, all right? And so he then was employed by Rand Corporation, and he was considered a very top-flight Pentagon analyst. And... One of the things he worked on in this book he has out now is atomic war game theory. I think his book is called The Doomsday Machine, all right? Uh, and it just came out a few weeks ago, all right? Well, one of the things that he studied also, of course, was the Vietnam War, all right? And so, in his opinion, he thought there were too many conflicting signals, 1965, and so he decided, you know something, I should actually go there and take a look. So he volunteered for, uh, uh, he switched from the Defense Department to the State Department, went to Vietnam for two years, talked to people like Ed Lansdale, talked to people like John Paul Van, talked to the Vietnamese leaders, and he came back, and he's now convinced that this is not just a lost cause. It's an absolute disaster. You know, we're, we're, we're propping up a government that literally has no support. You know, if we weren't there, the government would collapse. Didn't he also expose right? the so lie? Therefore, the lie that all there these were, people were dying for nothing. Didn't he also expose the lie that there were these, the, supposedly there's, there are these U.S. Army patrols in certain regions <laughs> of the country, and they don't Isn't even exist. Hysterical? They don't even exist. Isn't that hysterical? That he, he went out in the field with the John Paul Vans mission, and he looks at this paperwork, and, he, and he's, well, he, wait a minute, where are these guys? There's no patrols in this territory. <laughs> they would just make this stuff up to make it look like their mission was succeeding. All right? And so, and so he, he comes back, and two things happen on the way back. He actually talks to McNamara. Which, and by the way, that's in the movie, thank God. And he actually talks to Bob Comer in a private conversation. And he finds out that Mac, he, McNamara doesn't think it's working anyway. But when they touch down in the United States, he tells the press that we are, the effort, American effort is working. And he finds out that Comer doesn't believe it either. And Comer was like in the Defense Department, and he was supposed to be running a counterinsurgency program. And so what he realizes after all this is that the only reason we're still in Vietnam 
is because Johnson doesn't want to lose the war. All right? But then he also finds out, because he goes back to Rand when he comes back from Vietnam, and one of Rand's missions after the presidential election of 68 was to brief Kissinger. Okay? And so he goes ahead and he briefs Kissinger. And he tells him just how bad everything is. But then he hears that Nixon does not want to be the first president to lose a war. So now, to him, there's no way out of this thing. So he had worked on one chapter of the Pentagon Papers. All right? I think, I think he worked on 1961. All right? And so he knew that Rand Corporation had two copies of the entire 49 volumes. All right? And he had a friend there named Anthony Russo. Russo had also been in Vietnam, and what his mission was, was to check on the prisoners of war that the United States had taken from North Vietnam and the Viet Cong. He came to the conclusion, there's no way we're going to win this thing, because these people really believe in what they're doing. They're willing to die. Right, and they're going to, to, they're going to cling to, to the lie country. right to the, the bitter end. Yeah, and so... When Ellsberg tells him, do you know McNamara commissioned this encyclopedic study back in 67 that confirms everything we're talking about? And do you know that there's two copies here? And Russo immediately goes, well, you've got to copy them. That's Get actually, out of here. excuse me, Jim, this is actually one of the better parts in the movie, I thought. I mean, in terms yes, of the filmmaking, that, the beginning, yeah. that, that, that nervous scene of the photocopying, that's actually quite well done. They really created, yes. Spielberg created a lot of tension there. Mm-hmm. All right, and so, so that's what they do. At that time, Russo had a girlfriend, Linda Sine, all right, and she had an advertising company. And they, of course, did not want to take it to, you know, an open business kind of thing. And so they asked her if they could use her comping machine. All right. And night after night, week after week, I think it was for over a month. All right. They copied the Pentagon Papers. All 49, okay? so 49 that's volumes. That's how he got his copy. Mm. And so, that, of course, technically it's theft because it was a top-secret study at Rand Corporation, which he spirited out and copied. It's more right. than theft, so it's then espionage. the question became, yeah. how am I going to get this thing to the public? Right. All right. And so he goes to Washington. He goes to three senators and a congressman. All right. McGovern, Matthias, and Fulbright are right. the senators. Right. All right. McCloskey is the congressman. And in a long chapter in his book, Secrets which I recommend anybody read, all right, um, much better than this movie, all right, for one reason or another, every one of them turned him down. And that was very important, because if you read my review, the reason that he wanted to do it this way is because in the Constitution, there's a free speech and debate clause that if you read something on the floor of the House or the floor of the Senate, the FBI cannot question you about where you got it, all right? Right. And so the, he thought that would be the safest way 
for him to do this. It would have been all but above when board. when they all said yeah. no, he now said, i got to get it to the press then. And that's when he went to the New York Times. And that's when all of his problems began. Right. Now, right. Neil Sheehan... Uh, the, the reporter at the New York Times, who I understand also was a hawk uh, and, yes. and and was then la- later converted to the fact that this is a lost cause and it's going to be an absolute bloodbath unless we get this out. Now, did Sheehan, did he go to um, Ellsberg's apartment because he had a key for some reason? And did he take those documents or did? Yes. How did that work true. out? That's true. Ellsberg knew him from Vietnam. And so Ellsberg calls him up because he had, he had left Rand Corporation, and he was now had a teaching fellowship at MIT. So Sheehan drove up to Cambridge, and Ellsberg shows him the documents. And he says, I'll let you take notes on this stuff, all right, and go ahead and talk to the guys at the New York Times, all right, and then let me know if they want to publish them, and then I'll let you copy them. Well, <laughs> what happened is that Ellsberg left for one weekend. He had given Sheehan the key to his apartment for him to take his notes. And when he was gone, Sheehan went ahead and copied them and brought him down to New York. He never told Ellsberg about this, and he never told him what the status was at the New York Times editing room about what they were going to do with them. Right. All right. And so he had to find out through a different reporter at the New York Times on the eve of their three-day series. Okay? That's how Ellsberg found out about it. All right? And so what happens is... I'll get you to hold it. Jim, I'm going to get you to hold it right there. We're going to head into a break here. Uh, I mean, you know... Much has been said about the New York Times in the last several years and how I think in many respects they have fallen from grace. But this is a real important moment in their history uh, because a lot of the management, the upper echelons at the New York Times, the ownership did not want to publish. Uh, But those just sort of below them threatened to resign unless they did. Very heroic and we have to give kudos to... uh, what some call now the failing New York Times. But at the moment, this is a pinnacle moment in history, and uh, we'll pick up the story with Jim DiEugenio on the other side as we discuss the Pentagon paper, uh, Papers and the uh, Spielberg movie The Post. Back with more in a moment. If you're sure your phone isn't tapped, call now. 416-360-0740 or toll-free at 1-866-740-4. 740. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. Keeping an eye on the new world order. This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio. Next hour, remote viewer Igor Grigich uh, will be here. Next week on the program, oh, well, we have a good one in store for you. I'm excited about this. Uh, now, Bryce Abel uh, is um, an award-winning uh, author, and there's this, there's this uh, genre that I really like. It's alternative history. So it's one of those what-if things that worked out a little differently. And in his debut in this sort of this genre, Bryce Abel, that is, was called Surrounded by Enemies. What if Kennedy survived Dallas? 
and he won the uh, the Sideways Award for Alternative History on that. Uh, now he has a new one out, uh, and it's called Once There Was a Way, What If the Beatles Stayed Together? So Bryce Zabel will join us next week to talk about that. And then in the second hour, L.A. Marzuli. He's got an update on those elongated skulls from Peru. Uh, they have some uh, DNA uh, testing uh, performed on those, and he'll be uh, along, I guess, to give us the results. So that's Bryce Zabel on uh, what if the Beatles stay together and uh, L.A. Marzulli on the elongated skulls. All right, Jim DiEugenio is with us, kennedysandking.com. Check out that website. It's fantastic. And um, we are talking about the Pentagon Papers and the Steven Spielberg movie The Post with Tom Hanks, Meryl Streep playing Ben Bradley and Kathleen Graham. And uh, Jim has sort of, in his review, you can read it at kennedysandking.com, really uh, talks about how this is nothing more than than, uh, myth-making. So let's just very quickly tie this up and talk about uh, the New York Times and their battle to to publish this uh, and and the Nixon administration trying to shut it down and so forth. And then we'll get into uh, the Spielberg movie, Jim. Right. At the New York Times, there was a great debate about whether or not to publish the documents. The upper management, the owner, etc., didn't want to do it. Their hired law firm advised them not to do it. But the managing editor, Abe Rosenthal, and many of the reporters said, we're either going to publish this stuff, we're going to be looking for a new staff. All right? And so they decided to go ahead and publish it. Their general counsel, James Goodale, was a real hero here because the law firm then deserted the Times because they disobeyed their recommendation. And James Goodale put together an ad hoc defense team when they were sued, which they were, by Nixon and Mitchell. All right? So then, once that happened and they had to stop publishing, that's when Ellsberg started getting out through his little network, new copy after new copy after new copy, eventually 19 newspapers had some version of the Pentagon Papers. Right. This was because of Ellsberg. But the Times had published... When the Washington Post started publishing, they did it for two days. Nixon and Mitchell sued them, too. Right. But the the New York Times... keeping one step ahead of Nixon and Mitchell, and finally it went to the Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court ruled... For the Times, six to three. Right, right. All right. Now, this is interesting because now we get into the, the Hollywood myth making. So here we have, um, you know, the New York Times breaking the story. They published excerpts for three days before they were actually, uh, I guess, you know, the injunction or whatever, before they were stopped. Temporary uh, Temporary, work. yeah. So, but they published it for three days. They broke the story. And then, as you say, uh, in order to you know to keep it moving, there were other nineteen other papers that were approached. So why does Spielberg decide to tell this story from the perspective of Kathleen Graham, who was very, you know, very uh, close with the Johnson administration? Uh, and, uh, why did they choose you know to tell it from that particular angle? They they had they were a minor player in all this. Yeah, they they were involved. The, the saga of the Pentagon Papers went on for well over two years, all right, actually closer to three, all right? And so the Post, the Post was involved for two weeks, <laughs> two weeks. But yet in this movie, 
It's like the major players in the story are Kate Graham and Ben Bradley. When in fact, as you know, as Floyd Abrams, one of the lawyers who appeared in court to defend the Times, said they're inconsequential. They they would have just sued somebody else. Once they shut us down, they were looking to sh- sue everybody else. All right. And then another thing that Floyd Abrams t- told me, Jim, this would be like making a movie about Watergate and focusing on the New York Times instead of the Washington Post. Right. And he's right. exactly right about that. Yeah, because as you point you know, out in your it, review, Jim, in in uh, Ellsberg's book, and it, this is you know this is the definitive account because you know it's told in the first person. He only mentions uh, uh, Ben Bradley once and Kathleen Graham not once at all in the entire what yeah, four hundred pages. Isn't that amazing? Yeah. He mentions Ben Bradley once, four hundred fifty-seven page book. Doesn't mention Graham at all. All right, so that's how important, okay, they were from his point of view. And then, of course, you have Kate Graham's book, Personal History, five hundred pages long, twelve pages on the Pentagon Papers. Hmm. All right, that's how much it meant to her. Right. All right. See, and like I said in that review, you know, if you take a look at the background of the Post and who Graham and Bradley really were. They were Johnson's cheerleaders. Yes. On escalating the entire war. As Johnson actually, I don't think I put this in the review. Johnson actually said once that Kate Graham's support is worth 15 divisions for me in South Vietnam. Oh, oh, oh very telling. Jim, we've got to take another time out. We'll come back and uh, finish up to the top of the hour. Jim D. Eugenio, the Pentagon Papers and uh, Hollywood Myth Making, Steven Spielberg's The Post with uh, Tom Hanks and Meryl Streep. Back with more in a moment. Stay with us. My name is Richard Serrett. You want the truth? You can handle the truth. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zuma Radio. To get the truth, call Richard now at 416-360-0740 or toll free at 1-866-740-4740. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. Exploring theories, uncovering facts, and offering a different view of the universe. This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett on Zoomer Radio. Jim DiEugenio is with us, assassination researcher, and again, the website is... Kennedysandking.com, and we're talking about the Pentagon Papers, Daniel Ellsberg, sort of one of the original whistleblowers uh, that released this 7,000-page, 43-volume study that was commissioned by Robert McNamara and the Defense Department, or the Pentagon, um, sort of looking at U.S.-Vietnamese relations beginning in 1945 all the way up until 1967 and sort of exposed... 1968. 68, thank you, and exposed the lie. Uh, And yet... Uh, and it was this story was uh, was um, released by the New York Times. They broke the story, and yet Spielberg decides to tell it from the perspective of the Washington Post, uh, and uh, right. makes a, a you know a hero out of Kathleen Graham and and Ben Bradley. <laughs> when as you when as you say, uh, Kathleen Graham um, were in tight with the uh, the Johnson administration, and and she must have known full well that when Johnson was campaigning. 
in 64 that he had no intention of, you know, widening the uh, U.S. involvement in Vietnam, that he was going to do the exact opposite. Right. Because, as I note in the, in the essay, all right, Johnson wanted the Washington Post in his corner because they were the local newspaper. They had a very large circulation in the Washington area, and they were very influential. And so he knew he was going to expand the war, reverse Kennedy's policies, and he wanted them on his side. So I think in the spring of 1964, I think it was April 64, he had Graham and the executive editors over to the White House for dinner, and he told them this, that I'm going to go ahead and expand the war. And what's important about that date is it's before the campaign started. So they had to know that he was lying his head off when he said, we seek no wider war, and we don't want to send American boys to do the job that Asian boys must do. All right? So they must have known. And the proof of that, of course, is that all of his escalations, the major ones in 65 and 66, they supported them. Not only did they support them, they went after the people who tried to attack Johnson for doing it. Right. You know? Right. And yet I mean, Spielberg... So how, you know, come on. This whole idea that there's a scene in the movie where she confronts McNamara, there's two lies going on in that scene. The idea that she didn't know what Johnson was going to do, and B, she didn't approve of it. And the second lie is on the, on the characterization of McNamara, that he didn't want her to print the Pentagon Papers. McNamara never interfered with anybody's printing of the Pentagon Papers. Why, why would he have commissioned it if he didn't want it to get out? Right. You're, that's exactly the question that the movie doesn't want you to ask yourself. All right? So this is why, you know, and then the other scene, which is so... Oh my God! I almost threw up when I watched this. <laughs> is when Bedjikian, the reporter who from Daniel Ellsberg knew, yeah, from the comes into Bradley's office with this tall grocery bag. All right, and he says words to the effect that I always wanted to be part of rebellion. Bradley, played by Tom Hanks, looks in the bag, brings it over to Graham's office, starts pulling out all these newspapers, and says words to the effect. Look what we did. And they start celebrating. I mean, that was so disgusting. That was, that was Ellsberg who did that. Mm-hmm. It was like I said earlier in the show. It was Ellsberg who then copied the other, the, the whole 7,000-page study and started sending it out to, to a total of a grand total of 19 newspapers, knowing that that would get him in even more trouble with the White House. Right. Because, of course, every time he copied it, that was another count. And we should point out that Ellsberg was actually, he was on the lam for something like two weeks. The FBI, there was a manhunt for him. Yes. Uh, and, yes. and he was facing, under the Espionage Act, about 115 years. He was facing a 115-year maximum sentence, Rousseau 35. And here, here's another, and it said this is all completely left out of the movie. But they tried to flip Rousseau to testify against Ellsberg. Mm-hmm. And they put him in jail for seven weeks, and he wouldn't do it. And so they both went to trial in Los Angeles. You know, and, and the reason that the trial failed was because, and this is another thing that's completely left out of the movie, Nixon personally supervised five meetings on the prosecution in Los Angeles. Five. All right? 
And it ended up that the charges got thrown out because, A, they illegally wiretapped Ellsberg. B, they sent the plumber's unit to raid a psychiatrist's office and dig up dirt on him. Right. And C, they, uh, they also... Um, offered a they, job they to the tried judge. They to influence the judge. Yeah, they offered him a job. <laughs> the <laughs> FBI is not a job. FBI directorship. Right. Classic Dick Tricky Dick. Uh, and this, was, this is kind of an interesting point in history because this is where the plumbers, this is why they were created prior to the Watergate break-in. They were, they were created, the plumbers, to fix the leaks as a result well, of the... No, pen- well, okay, that's one way. Well, okay, that's the way the plumbers influenced the Ellsberg case. But the film tries to say that that's the reason the plumbers were created in the first place. Ah, okay. They, the reason they were created in the first place is because Nixon was going crazy because he thought that Johnson had the file on him interfering in the 68 election with um, uh, the uh, South Vietnam. Right, yeah, under the Logan Act. I mean, he, that, would, that would have been yeah. treasonous. Okay, so you, you know all about that. Yeah. Great, great. i got to yeah. ask you, though, uh, because... Nixon didn't come into office until 69. I mean, I know he was vice president under Eisenhower, and Eisenhower, obviously, they had some uh, dealings with with Vietnam. But why was Nixon so afraid of the Pentagon Papers? He wasn't directly involved. You know, that's a really good question, Richard. That is a really, really good question. Because, like we said earlier, the Pentagon Papers stop at 68. All right. So why would Nixon be so worried about this? And the answer to that question is, and when you read the essay is, that on the first day, unlike what the movie shows, Nixon laid low. He didn't really do very much at all. But two people, Henry Kissinger and John Mitchell, then on the second and third day that the Times published, they're the ones who warned him, and Kissinger especially, because he knew Ellsberg, all right, and he knew that it was probably Ellsberg getting these papers out. He said, "This is making us subverting our government. You know, it's making you look like a weakling." And Kissinger knew exactly how to press Nixon's buttons, all right. So then Nixon then makes a fatal mistake. He calls up John Mitchell, the Attorney General, says, "Do we have any case on this?" John Mitchell was a bond lawyer in New York City. What did he know about prior restraint and freedom of speech? So he gives him some absolutely horrendous advice. He says, yes, we do. It's been done before, and all we have to do is advise the uh, suspect, and then we'll file charges. Well, that was utterly and completely wrong. It had never been done before. Didn't Lincoln do it during the Civil War? does not have an official secrets act. But didn't Lincoln do that during the Civil War? Didn't he shut down papers for that reason? Okay, there's a big difference when you have a civil war going on, okay? Right. They wouldn't even allow it during World War I, okay? But when there's a civil war going on in your own territory, the, the court made a distinction, all right? But even during World War I, which the Espionage Act came out of, they, that act was not designed to go after publication of newspapers. Mm, okay, interesting. All right, so... Good, Gooddale, the New, the New York City lawyer, who understood that. He understood that, that, they, that the Times had a good case. So I've got to ask right. you, Jim, in the time that remains, when you only have a few minutes here, what, I, 
I mean, but somewhat of a rhetorical question about why Spielberg would decide to make the Washington Post and Ben Bradley and Kathleen Graham the heroes, and as you say, they include uh, they include Daniel Ellsberg, the real hero, in 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 only 15 minutes of the film. I mean, it's about him, really. This story is about him and Goodale, yeah. as you point out, another hero in this story, the New York Times. Why would he right. do that, Spielberg? That is. Well, Why would you he... know how bad it really was? In the first draft of the script, that ten-minute prologue at the beginning, right, with the Times and Ellsberg, that wasn't even in there. This is where Ellsberg is typing away on his typewriter. Meanwhile, there are yeah, bombs Vietnam, coming. In, in Vietnam. And then they go ahead and they go to the copying machine, and that wasn't in there. See, my, what I what I conclude is that, in my opinion, Spielberg and Hanks fancy themselves as historians, but they really aren't. They don't even hire anybody to do their research for them, which is what anybody who really wants to tell history should do. Right. You know? It's like they get and it out of Wikipedia really, or something. To me, that's bad. It is. It's beyond bad. It's, yeah. it's like, it's, it's uh, yeah, it's lazy. It's just plain lazy. And yeah, it's not even a good... I, I totally agree. Because the real story is so much better. Yeah, I, that, I agree with that, too. I mean, the, the real story has Ellsberg really being the very first big-time whistleblower in United States history, mm. doing this at the risk of his life, you know, and Russo doing more or less the same. You know, and then you have all these great characters, like George McGovern and Robert Kennedy and Bill Fulbright and John Paul Van. And, but they didn't have no interest in telling that story. And we should point out I that... I don't ask me why. I really don't know well, why. Well, I don't know. Is it, it, could it be? Because, you know, you've, you, you talked about the CIA's um, uh, manipulation of Hollywood, and uh, you've written about that. I'm, I'm wondering because, you know, the, the owner of the Post, Jeff Bezos, uh, obviously has this huge contract with the CIA uh, to, yes. to create this, you know, this cloud for them. Uh, uh, and, and so now we have to, you know, look twice every time we read about the Washington Post and their coverage of the CIA. Is that possible? Is there, is there kind of a nexus there between Spielberg yeah, 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 Richard, and Bezos? I really wish I could answer that question. You know, but I, I would only be speculating. You know, I I really don't understand why Spielberg and Hanks do this kind of stuff. You know, and, and it, it I try and address this in my book, you know, by the fact that as young men they were outsiders, you know, and they wanted to be insiders. So now they're insiders and they don't want to really do any hard-edge stuff. Because if you tell the true story of the Pentagon Papers, it's a completely different film. Right. It's not a feel-good myth. Yeah, it's Oliver. A very hard-edged story. Oliver Stone should have done this movie. Now, there you go. Okay, that's probably the only guy in Hollywood who could have done it justice. You know. All right. Well, thanks to you, Jim. We now know maybe people can save their money before going to see the post, uh, or maybe they want to check it out anyway. But it is, as you say, mere Hollywood myth making. Jim, always a pleasure. Let's talk again soon. All the best. Okay, thank you, Richard. Kennedysandking.com, the website. All right, we are uh, reaching out to Croatian remote viewer Igor Grigic. I think we have him. Ian has uh, remote viewed, and he's there and ready to go. And that's next on The Conspiracy Show. Stay with us. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. Live 
From Toronto, Canada, Earth, The Conspiracy Show with Richard Sarrett on Zoomer Radio. Thanks for inviting me to your home, long-haul truck, RV, camper, taxi, your parents' well-appointed basement, your loft, that greasy spoon just off the interstate, and your cabin in the woods. Well, hello there to all of you listening in on our flagship station right here in Toronto, Zoomer Radio, AM 740, 96.7 FM, and all of you catching us on one of our 40-odd affiliate stations. Nothing odd about them. There are about 40 across the network. The podcast, of course. Uh, Maybe you're listening to us on uh, one of two apps, the Zoomer Radio app and the Conspiracy Show app, which are both fabulous and both free downloads. The live YouTube stream, of course. uh, The live YouTube chat. Uh, However, and wherever you're listening or watching, I bid thee the warmest of welcomes, and I thank you for your fine company. Uh, Don't forget to subscribe to the YouTube channel, uh, BTW, The uh, Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. And uh, don't forget about my new podcast, Conspiracy Unlimited. New episodes drop every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. All right, Ian is here, our fine rockabilly friend, Albert and uh, Ryan, also in-house. Now, we used to do a segment on uh, this program called What's in the Box. It was our weekly remote viewing experiment, and listeners to the program, would they were invited to try and remote view an object that was hidden from view. It was in, placed in a cigar box uh, here in studio, and um, we might bring that back at some point. I got a lot of emails. People say some loved it, some didn't like it so much. And my little guy, one of my twin uh, boys, North, uh, keeps asking me, pestering really is the word, Dad, you got to bring back what's in the box. So we'll we'll think about it. We'll consider it. Um, and we had, I guess we did that for what? What was it? Maybe a year? Did we have that instituted that, Albert? Was it about a year maybe in total? Could have been, yeah. When yeah. Douglas James Cottrell came on, it started then. We launched it with Douglas, right, the man with x-ray eyes. And um, we had some... I would say over a year, I don't know, I haven't done the math, but we had some a lot of misses and a lot of interesting um, hits, really. And Albert, you had a couple of interesting hits, and Ian in the other room had an interesting hit. Uh, Ryan, I'm, I'm sorry to say, you you never, ever, ever came close. You know what, you, you? Said, you said I came close once really? when I guessed uh, solar eclipse glasses, and it was swim goggles. Ah, you're right, that's true. Um, okay, I, I, I humbly apologize, mm-hmm. you're right. You but did. often I was way off, yeah. Okay, no, that that is actually a pretty good hit. That's a pretty good hit. So uh, the point is, you know, there are different types of of remote viewing. Uh, Oh, I recently, I should point out, I recently did a remote viewing experiment on my uh, my podcast, Conspiracy Unlimited, with uh, Douglas Cottrell. Uh, He had an object where he was uh, situated in near London, Ontario. And uh, I, w- I won't say that it was, you know, that I, ha- I hit it, na- hit, uh, I hit it the nail on the head exactly. But you know, well, pe- pe- people can listen to that episode and decide for themselves. Um, so, but Douglas's method and the method that we used here is entirely different. Uh, there is also coordinate remote viewing, uh, which was what I guess was being taught to uh, the psychic soldiers at places like Fort Meade back in the 1980s as part of the Pentagon Stargate program, and, and uh, uh, Russell Targ. 
uh, and, and Hal Putoff and, and others at the Stanford Research Institute. Was that uh, was that coordinate remote viewing, uh, Albert? Right, coordinate with the map, and they're using you know geographical locations. Right. Okay. Right. Well, there's another kind of remote viewing that I um, heretofore not familiar with. It's called ARV, and that's associative remote viewing. And we're going to learn about that over the next hour with an award-winning remote viewer. Igor Grigic is an IT system engineer. Uh, he works in the IT department of One Food Corporation in Croatia. In his free time, he's occupied with his true-life passions, and these include remote viewing, uh, a.k.a. non-local perception, and anomalous cognition, dream interpretation, and other uh, PSI phenomenon. Igor uh, Debrelin Katz and Patrizio Trisaldi study associative remote viewing, ARV, a specific application of remote viewing during which predictions about events of circumstances can be made. ARV is a method, of, uh, is a method to access information that will only be known in the future, and it is commonly connected with predicting outcomes of financial and sporting events. Igor and his team will be reviewing data from previously completed ARV trials. The researchers seek to understand what worked when predictions resulted in hits and what went wrong when predictions resulted in misses. Igor Grigic, welcome to The Conspiracy Show. How are you? Hello, thank you. I'm fine, thank you. Good morning and greetings from uh, Croatia. Okay, uh, the the audio is a little problematic. Igor, can you can you back away maybe from the? I'm not sure what's happening. Back away from the microphone a little bit, or can you hear me okay? I hear you. I hear you great. Yeah. Okay. All right. It doesn't sound too bad now. All right. Now, Igor, first of all, am I pronouncing your last name? Is it Grigic or Grigic? Uh, Grigic. Grigic. All right. So, tell me, I, I described ARV a little bit, um, but uh, go into a little more explanation. When you talk about, uh, or when, when we, we, we describe ARV as a method to access future events, is that essentially correct? Uh, yes. Yes. It can be future events, but also... Uh, uh, questions about things in present time or in past time. It, it doesn't have to necessarily be about the future. Okay. But this is the but this is the only method. I mean, one of the methods with which uh, we can uh, access information about the future, uh, about events uh, where we have a. Uh, few selected possible outcomes. So in this case, ARV uh, can help us to get these answers much easier. Now, when I think of remote viewing, I think of trying to, to locate an object or identify an object that's hidden from view. It could be in a remote location. Let's say, for example, you know, I mentioned the the uh, psychic soldiers at Fort Meade, and maybe they're trying to locate a a missile silo in in uh, in Russia uh, or something like that. But you're talking about, in some cases, with ARV events. You're not talking about an object. You're talking about an event. So how then yes. is that different than than clairvoyance? Well. Uh Clairvoyance is just uh, a general 
term, I don't know, it was used before 70s when the SRI uh, folks uh, coined the term remote viewing. So that sounds like more scientific, so they can get funds for their project. Uh, All right, you're breaking when, up a little bit, uh, you're breaking up uh, a little bit, Igor. Event. Okay. Uh, breaking up a little bit. I think what maybe we could okay. do is um, uh, I'm wondering if you could perhaps email a phone number. We don't want to give it out over the air. If you could phone, email a phone number, a landline number to my producer, Albert, and then we can, we can get Ian, our producer, to, to call you after the break. Could we do that, do you think? Okay, we can try all right. If you're able to email, please include the country code and so forth, and email Albert, and then we'll uh, we'll try to get you on the landline. But we've, we'll do that after the break. Let me ask you, then. So how does it how does it differ? Let's say from coordinate remote viewing. What's the methodology? How do you um, uh, attempt to access information? Let's say a future event, for example. Let's say it's the outcome of a sporting event. What's the methodology? Okay. Okay, I will explain the ARV methodology, and I don't know, uh, I send you uh, some pictures. I don't know if the listeners can see that, see those pictures on the yes, on the, yes, uh, they can. Yes, YouTube they can. channel. We have them up right now. Because in, because in the case of ARV, uh, one picture really is like thousand words. I mean, I, I will explain it, but... Also, looking at the picture will will help a lot. Okay. Uh, so uh, so let me try to uh, give what ARV is. So uh, so this is a method so, so we use to predict future outcomes of events through associating possible event outcomes with photo targets. And then a remote viewer is tasked to describe and sketch the target, which will be associated with what will be the event's actualized outcome. I don't know if this is clear now, but uh, I will explain on uh, on the example. So, uh, in example that I use, uh, which is also on my website. For anybody to get familiar with okay, you're really breaking up now. So you're breaking up now. Let me just um, okay. You can I, call. You can. Yeah, we're gonna uh, we're gonna break, and and if you could call, if you could email uh, um, Albert right now with your your landline number, do that right straight away if you could, Igor. Then we'll uh, have Ian call you back on the landline, and we'll have a good clear connection. Just a reminder that uh, Igor Grigich is with us, award winning associative remote viewer. We'll be back in a moment. Stay with us. Corporations, governments, and sometimes entire civilizations. What goes up must come down. And it lands on The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. The world is being pulled over your eyes. This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Sarrett from Zoomer Radio. All right, we are back with award-winning remote viewer Igor Grigich. 
uh, live from Croatia, and we're learning about associative remote viewing. Uh, are you there, Igor? Yes, I'm here. Ah, I appreciate that. Uh, thank you so much. It's it's a hundred percent better. I can I can tell already. So, um, we, so we have uh, we're posting some of these photo photos that you sent along on uh, the uh, the YouTube, and um, so it it hasn't popped up popped up on my screen yet because uh, it's a, there's a slight. Okay, here we are. So, associative remote viewing. So we're talking about something called a binary protocol, where we're predicting an outcome of a future event through associating. Two possible event outcomes with two photo targets. So explain yes. a little bit about that. What do you mean by two possible event outcomes with two photo targets? Okay, uh, I'm sorry. I I hear you very very poorly now over the phone, but I I I, I was able to understand. Okay, uh, so um, let's say we want to predict a future outcome of a game. Right, Norway, Norway versus Scotland. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, uh, maybe you can. Uh, maybe your first question would be, why don't we use uh, a normal remote viewing? I mean, coordinate remote viewing to view which of these two teams will win. Well, that's because uh, we want to make a remote viewer blind. So, we want to make this process totally blind. So that he can do the remote viewing session totally unbiased, not knowing anything about uh, which teams we want to predict. Okay. So, 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 to make him, uh, so to make remote viewer blind and unaware what we are going to predict, so he can utilize only his uh, remote viewing skill. Uh, that's the point of uh, ARV, because with ARV, we we uh, mask, uh, sort of speak, sort of speak uh, the outcomes, with uh, and we associate two possible outcomes with two different pictures, and then the re- remote viewer, instead of directly viewing uh, Norway or, or Scotland outcome, will remote view actually these two photo targets. Okay, let me go through the example. Uh, let's say we have photo one is a photo of a child. Yes. And photo two is a photo of a truck. So now what I talk about, this will do another person, not the remote viewer. This is the and tasker. Another person is, co- is called the tasker. Right. Now. And remote viewer must be completely blind. Then the tasker will associate photo uh, child photo with one of the outcomes. Let's say outcome that Norway will win. And uh, photo number two, the truck photo, will be associated with uh, uh, other outcome, which is Scotland will, will win. So this is completely blind to the viewer. And now uh, the tasker will send a tasking to the viewer and will ask the viewer, please describe and sketch your feedback photo. Okay. Now... The, I, I now just, the remote viewer totally blind to the outcomes and totally blind to the photos will just go to the session and try to describe the photo which will be associated with future outcome and that information of course the outcome we will know 
after the game is over. And after the game is over, the tasker will send the actual uh, photo to the viewer, and this will be the photo which was associated with what was the actual uh, outcome. All right, now, let me just uh, see if I can understand this. So, the photo photo number one is this, yes. is a child, and yes. photo number two is a truck. If the remote yes. viewer describes photo number one, the outcome, let's say, would be that Norway wins. If the remote yes. viewer describes the truck, the future outcome would yes. be that Scotland wins. Let's say it's a football match or a soccer match. Um, who decides yes. on the target photos? Is it the tasker? Uh, the tasker selects target photos. Okay, so yes. it could be anything. He could say that 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 it photo can number be anything. Yes, anything. Right. Yeah. Now, so the remote viewer in this exercise, he doesn't he doesn't know what the photo targets are. And also, he doesn't know no. what the mission is. He doesn't know which future event he's predicting. He's just trying to identify one photo or the other. Yes, correct. The remote viewer doesn't know anything about targets. It's, 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 uh, a remote viewer is totally blind to targets and, to the, and even to the game selected. Fascinating. So, um, who developed ARV? Well, uh, ARV was de- developed some somewhere in 1970s. I think uh, there are a few people who work on it. It was Stephen Schwartz and also uh, Russell Targ. Ah, all right, at the Stanford Research Institute. Yeah, yeah. And... Is it, do we know, do we have data, Igor, uh, to compare, contrast ARV with coordinate remote viewing? Is one more accurate, more successful than the other? Well, you can't directly compare because in ARV we have, uh, we want to predict outcome of events with only uh, two possible outcomes or three or four. Uh, so you cannot uh, you cannot compare accuracy in in that uh, in that way directly. Okay. Now you are an award-winning uh, ARV or uh, a, a remote viewer. Uh, tell us about the uh, the organization uh, that awarded you this this prize. Okay. Uh, so it was a. Uh, parapsychological uh, association uh, where we won this uh, award, these uh, funds. So uh, my colleague Deborah Lynn Katz and I have been uh, working together and part of one uh, remote viewing organization called uh, Applied Precognition Project. Uh, I'm a member there for the last four years. And I worked uh, with Deborah on a number of uh, different ARV projects. Um, uh, and in this big community, we try to predict outcome of sports uh, events or financial 
outcomes using ARV. So we have a massive collection of data, of past data, uh, because I also uh, manage uh, one, rem- uh, one ARV group. So over the, over the years, uh, I collected a lot of data. So, and then we, Deborah and I came to an idea that we could uh, do the judging process again. So the judging process in ARV is when a judge or a tasker compares the remote viewing session from the viewer, compares to the two photo targets, and decide uh, which of the two targets is a better match with the session. So, uh, so for ex- in our example, yeah, in our example, if uh, if uh, the judge or a tasker uh, finds that uh, session from a remote viewer is a is a good or great match with the child photo, then we can conclude uh, we can on, we can make a prediction that uh, Norway will win. So. Uh, and based on this, all these data, uh, we figured we can uh, uh, assign ten different ten different judges to uh, judge independently and came up with their own uh, predictions. And when this uh, study will uh, finish, we will have a, a, a ten new sets of data which we will compare to the original uh, judge original judge predictions and so we are hoping we can learn uh, what was wrong when uh, there was an ARV miss. Um, we will see how one judge, uh, was one judge for example too permissive or too harsh while judging. We can see, we, ho- we also have a team of judges in this study so we'll see how a team of judges, judges uh, how we can compare that to uh, a single judge. Also, we will see if uh, we can uh, detect if some judge is better in his job than some other judge. And so these are some of things uh, we are exploring and hoping to find a new answer so we can help uh, the uh, this uh, very interesting uh, ARV field to progress more. Igor Grigic is uh, with us, an award-winning remote viewer, and we're talking about a remote viewing uh, protocol I've not heretofore uh, heard of before. It's called associative remote viewing, and right now on the, uh, the YouTube uh, uh, stream, you can see an explanation of it. Essentially, again, it's predicting an outcome of a future event through associating two possible event outcomes with two photo targets. So, in other words, imagine a future event. It's a soccer contest between uh, Norway and Scotland. The tasker uh, has two photographs hidden from view from the remote viewer, and uh, the tasker has assigned one photograph for one outcome and another photograph for another outcome. So let's say, in the example, a child represents, a photograph of a child represents the outcome of a Norway victory, and a truck, a photograph of a truck, represents the outcome of a Scotland uh, victory. And now the remote viewer, his, his uh, task is to 
a remote view one of those photos. And whichever one, obviously, that comes up, the, 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 the uh, child or the truck determines uh, the likely outcome of the soccer match. So tell us about some of your more notable hits, uh, uh, Igor, using associative remote viewing. Can you talk about some sporting events or financial events that you successfully remote viewed using ARV? Uh, yes, uh, I'm doing this with my ARV group uh, like almost four years. There were uh, like dozens of view- remote viewers in my group, and I, I don't remote view. I, I serve this group as a as a manager, as a tasker. I collect the data and so on. So we had. Uh, uh, lots of hits. Uh, we've been doing uh, predicting uh, f- uh, currency pairs on the forex market. We've been doing also, uh, I don't know, games like like uh, American football, baseball, and uh, soccer. But you have to understand that ARV is not 100% accurate. Uh, it's more like uh, 60% or 65 or uh, very skilled remote viewers can achieve 70% or even higher. Okay. And, and what, are the, what, is, what is the percent the, that could be accounted for by mere chance? What would that be? Yeah. Uh, also, it's important to understand that when we select an event to which we want to predict, we want to have that both outcomes are uh, have a roughly equal chance to occur. That right. The probability of both outcomes is uh, roughly equal, which means 50-50, 50%. 50%. Uh, and, and with ARV, you can achieve uh, so like 60, 70, or 80. So it gives you like 10% extra edge over 50%. So... If 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 uh, uh, if fifty uh, percent is what is expected by I don't know uh, a wild guessing or uh, like a point cost yes. event, yes, then then you you get this extra ten percent edge, or sometimes you can even get twenty percent, and when you think of it, that is really huge because with proper. Uh, uh, money management and proper uh, betting uh, methods, betting techniques. You, with this extra edge, you can you can make uh, profits uh, long term. Now, the tasker who chooses the photo targets is that completely random? They just wake up and decide. Okay, uh, the picture of a hamburger means the stock market is going up. And a picture of a hot dog mm-hmm. means the stock market is going down. Is it simply random on the part of the tasker, or is there a methodology, a protocol to choosing the photo targets? Well, uh, it is random, absolutely. Uh, the tasker can select any any photo uh, which is out there. It, do- it doesn't matter which one. But, of course, uh, the tasker must make sure that these two photo Photos are uh, dissimilar from each other as much as possible, because 
with our example, we have a child photo and truck photo. So one, one, uh, the first photo is uh, a life form. The second photo is a man-made, uh, man-made uh, uh, vehicle. So we must, we must make it as different as possible. We don't want for both photos to be uh, child photo, child. Uh, 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 one child and second child. So because when because in this case, while judging, the judge will have a very hard time to decide which of these two childs was actually described by by a viewer. So it right. will be a very hard choice to analyze. That's why it must, the, the photos must be different. Understood. So my example, not a and, good one. The hot dog and the hamburger, not a good choice. You would yeah, want that, you would want a yeah, hamburger. That is not a good choice. Yeah. Okay. So hamburger perhaps means the stock market goes up and a um uh an owl uh means the stock market goes uh down. So an an, an animate yeah. object and an inanimate object. Now do the yeah, that would be better. Yeah. Now, are the photographs? Do they do they have to be uh, while well, hidden from view, view, but in close proximity? D- does the tasker actually have to print out these photos and place them somewhere, uh, or could he just um, can he see the the or he or she see the images in their head? Well, uh, in the old days, I mean, in the seventies and eighties, when they first started doing this, they used. Uh, Envelopes, they printed out uh, photographs and put them in en- envelopes. Uh, but even prior to that, they just use uh, a real objects. For example, you go to the kitchen and select an apple and select, I don't know, a plate. And then they put these two objects somewhere, I don't know, uh, in the in the closet and just label the apple with first outcome and label the plate with second outcome. And then they uh, said to the viewer, please describe me the, the object. I will show you after the outcome. So after the outcome, the tasker uh, would simply take, I don't know, if the, uh, if the associated image, which turned out to be the outcome was the uh, sorry, not image, the object was uh, Apple, then the tasker would just, just simply take the Apple and hand it over to the remote uh, viewer. Okay. So, you see, you see, this was in the beginning, but then they started to use pictures, printed pictures, envelopes, and today we use uh, computer uh, photographs. We store everything in the computer. All right, listen, uh, I've got to jump in here, Igor. We've, we, got, to, we've, got, to, we've got to take a time out. We'll come back and uh, delve into this further. Stay with us as we discuss associative remote viewing with an award-winning remote viewer, Igor Grigich, right here on The Conspiracy Show. This is no place for the naive or the faint-hearted. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. Where there's smoke, there's The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio.
Welcome back. Just uh, in a little uh, mid-show confab with uh, my feature producer, Ryan White. Just wondering if we might be able to... I know it's short notice. Igor Grigic is uh, with us, uh, Associate of Remote Viewer, joining us live from Croatia. This is fascinating. Uh, Now, Igor, we didn't set this up ahead of time. I don't want to put you on the spot. But if we were, for example, uh, to choose... Let's say a couple of photographs. Let's say they're JPEGs on a computer, and we we tuck those away in a folder on a desktop, and um, we assign each photo target and an outcome of a future event, and we don't tell you what the future event is. Could we, before the the hour is up, have you remote view either of those photo targets, and then we can maybe do the reveal next week on the show? I don't know. I'm just throwing that out there. Uh, what did you uh, think? Who who would uh, remote view? You would. Uh, I don't know. <laughs> I, I'm, not, I'm not sure about about now. Uh, I know it's short notice, and I didn't want to put you on the spot, but I throw. I thought I'd throw that out there in any event. If we don't do it now, maybe we could we could set it up and we could do it at a future event, a future show. We could do an experiment. What do you think? Yeah, yeah, we we could do that. I could uh, arrange uh, a really uh, one uh, good remote viewer from my uh, group, so we can do that. So next time, okay, we, we will we will set that up then. So, am I to understand then you are primarily the tasker on these ARV teams? Yes, yes. Okay, so your team. Yes, I do. The, I do that. I do the tasking and the judging of the sessions. Okay, so um, then it, it's the it's the uh, it's your team that was awarded, right? The, the 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 prize, not just you personally. Uh, sorry, I I hear you very very poorly. Okay, uh, the question wasn't that important. Let me move on and ask you: What are the skills necessary for a good tasker? Can you hear that? What makes for a good yeah, tasker? Yeah. Okay. yeah. What makes a good tasker? Well, uh, you have to follow the the ARV uh, some rules, some simple rules. So you have to keep viewers blind, blind of the photos, of course. You have to select uh, the the proper uh, photo, which must be, as I said, explained, uh, different from each other, dissimilar. So the judging phase is uh, later on uh, much easier and you always have to deliver the correct uh, actualized uh, target to the viewer you must only uh, deliver the, the the target which is uh, associated with actual outcome and this target we call the and then this target becomes the feedback target. So the remote viewer only sees the feedback target, and that is important for a viewer because at that point the viewer learns learns uh, how to actually he learns uh, this process uh, because in this way when he sees the feedback photo his subconscious mind then establishes a connection 
connection which was first uh, established during the remote viewing session in present time. So by seeing the future fo- uh, the future feedback photo, he like entangles these two moments in time, and this way. Uh, it's like practicing. If you practice this off, uh, often enough, practice, 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 then you get better, better, and better, and your skills as a remote viewer improves. Now, let me in, let so me interject and see if I understand yeah. this, Igor. Uh, let me see if I understand this. So, mm-hmm. let's say, for example, uh, I'm asking about the outcome of the Super Bowl that's coming up next week. Mm-hmm. And um, Ryan, who did you say are the combatants? We have the Patriots, and who else? Yeah, is playing? Patriots and Eagles are okay, playing. Okay, the Patriots and the Eagles, and the Pats are favored by about five I think points. Five and a half points. Okay, yeah. so not a great example because it's not uh, like a fifty-fifty chance. But let's say the Patriots, yeah. the New England Patriots, and the Philadelphia Eagles. Let's say it's a toss-up, and that uh, it could go either way. So. The remote viewer doesn't know that that's the task. He doesn't know that we're asking them to choose the Super Bowl winner. And let's say we've assigned an apple, a shiny red apple photograph, and that is the target photo for the Patriots to win. That's the outcome, the Patriots win. And let's say we have assigned a a photograph of the Statue of Liberty, and that's the Eagles target photo if the outcome is the Eagles win. So then the remote viewer, those two photographs hidden from view, the remote viewer focuses on coming up with an image and let's say the the remote viewer what draws or describes the Statue of Liberty. So then as the tasker, do you wait for the game to be completed before you present or deliver that information to the remote viewer? How does that play out? Uh, please uh, repeat the last uh, question. Okay. Do you then, does the tasker deliver the photograph, the, the correct, the photograph that the remote viewer described before the outcome or after the outcome? After, always after, yes. This is important, of course. Um, the remote viewer will not see the images any time before the outcome is finished. Only after the outcome is finished, then the tasker will uh, deliver the feedback photo. All right. Now, what is the remote viewer doing? Uh, how are they? Des- are they describing the photograph? Are they drawing the photograph? How does that happen? Yeah, they do both. Yeah. In a remote viewing session, they focus on the feedback photo, and in the session, they uh, describe by using words, sketches. Uh, they simply write down on a piece of paper every every perception, every every sensory uh, every sensory perception that comes. Comes to mind. So there's kind of an interesting challenge here. Not only must they come up with one of two images out of all the possible photographs and images that are out there, and they are 
infinite practically they have to do, they have to describe one of those two images and then they have to describe the correct image that's uh, associated with yeah, the, yeah, the actual outcome yeah that is uh, yeah that's an incredibly difficult task all right we'll take a time out we'll come back uh, with Igor Grigich associative remote viewing right here on the conspiracy show loose lips sink ships and sometimes corporations got something to say Call Richard Serrett now at 416-360-0740 or toll-free at 1-866-740-4740. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. Big Brother is listening, and so are you. To The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio. To speak with Richard, call 416-360-0740 or toll-free 1-866-740-4740. Welcome back. Uh, Just a reminder, coming up next week on the program, author Bryce Zabel. uh, He has in the the past worked with, uh, I think, Richard Dolan. Um, I I believe he co-authored After Disclosure with Richard Dolan. He He has a new book out. Uh, called Once There Was a Way. What if the Beatles stayed together? Can't wait. As a uh, as a Beatle nut, a self-described Beatle nut, um, I love these alternative history uh, uh, books. And this uh, comes from Bryce, who previously was a Sideways Alternative History Award winner. It's a it's a new genre. So, well, I don't know how new it is, but that's uh, that's what it's called, alternative history. And uh, previously, he wrote. Uh, one about Kennedy called Surrounded by Enemies. What if Kennedy had survived Dallas? So once there was a way, what if the Beatles had stayed together? Second hour, L.A. Marzulli. We'll talk about those elongated skulls from Peru. They've performed some DNA testing, and he'll reveal, perhaps, we hope, the results. Uh, right now, uh, we are talking about associative remote viewing with Igor uh, Grigich, who is part of a team of associate remote viewers. He is uh, the tasker. And uh, we've been describing how it works and so forth. But what is the underlying principle? Do we know, uh, Igor, how it works? How is it that simply, not simply, but how is it that if a remote viewer identifies one of the target photographs associated with an outcome of a future event, that that will correctly identify the the outcome of the future event? How does it work? Do 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 we even know? Well, as in the case in, in uh, remote viewing or coordinate remote viewing, for the viewer, it's always the same. He just needs to describe the the, the feedback photo. In coordinate remote viewing, uh, there is only one target, which is always, of course, blind to the viewer. So from the aspect of viewing, uh, it's very similar. And... Um, and how how it's done? Well, the science doesn't know yet how it's how it's working because there is no yet a physical model or, or theory which would describe how psi functions in in general. But from the evidence and from the oldest studies from the last forty years or even more, we know that this phenomena is real. Now, 
aside from a sporting event or a financial event like the stock market going up or down or Bitcoin, you know, falling or rising, uh, what other applications uh, are there? Because you, as you say, you need to pick something where the outcome is is basically 50-50. Yeah, uh, I said 50-50 because in this way we can uh, more easily uh, measure and calculate what was that uh, extra edge. It doesn't have to be always 50-50. Actually, some teams are uh, predicting a straight-up winner. So uh, uh, one team can be a favorite, the other team can be an underdog. So it's not a 50-50 chance so you can do this as well but from the i don't know for my me personally i like to do more 50 50 because it's uh, uh, with proper money management it can produce more steady profits for example if you have uh, um, always doing uh, uh, underdog versus favorite then you can have five uh, winning five hits on the favorite, and and uh, you you can. Uh, but oh, sorry, sorry, that was a too long example to explain. Okay, that's all right. Let me ask you then, uh, because you you make available sort of courses on how to learn how to associate remote viewing. Now, I mean, we don't have time to get into the whole course here, but. If I want to learn how to remote view, mm-hmm. uh, you know, when I work with, with uh, Dr. Cottrell, who comes on the program a lot, we call him Canada's Edgar Casey. I don't know if you're familiar with Dr. James, Douglas James Cottrell. But he's just telling me to sort of clear my mind, don't let my conscious mind get in the way, and just, and don't guess and don't think, but, you know, just allow myself to open up my mind and allow the, the image to form in my mind and so forth. Uh, and it's, you know, and with practice, I guess, we all have that innate ability. But with associative remote viewing, is it more complicated than that, or what's involved? No, no, no. It would be the same. It, it would be the same. You simply, like you said, you, 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 calm, your, you calm your mind, you make your thoughts go away, you, you just uh, make a, a short cool down to relax, and then just, Go through the session. Just, just write on the piece of paper uh, what comes to your 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 mind, what you sense about target, the the subtle uh, sensations, uh, uh, sensory. Uh, uh, what sensories do you get about the target? And we talk about like five sensories, like taste, smells, colors, dimensions, and stuff like that. And um, does the target, uh, sorry, does the tasker and the remote viewer, do they need to be in the same location? No, they can be anywhere in the world, yeah. Okay. Anywhere. And the photographs, the two photographs, they could be physical photographs in an envelope or they could be JPEGs in a folder on a desktop? Whatever. Any, any, any of that. It can be whatever you like. And... Does the tasker also try and, um, I don't know, through telepathy, or does he 
he or she try and focus as well on the photographs and try and in 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 an attempt to aid the remote viewer does the tasker focus on the photographs themselves no no the tasker the tasker uh, does not focus on the photograph and the tasker can be blind as well to the photographs so so far we talked about the tasker will take the photograph but with the help of computer program you can do that you can let that uh, uh, to the to the to the program, and the program can do that instead of a tasker. So actually, no one, no one at all is aware what the two targets are. Ah, so it's a double-blind study almost. Yeah, but yeah. Who, but who comes up with the future outcome state uh, future outcome um, task? How is that generated? Uh, well, when well, if you use the program and uh, uh, photos are selected by the program, then after the, then at the judging stage, after the session is done, the session are sent, sent the viewer sends his session to the tasker, and only after the session, the tasker would uh, look into the program look at those two photos and then judge because someone has to judge someone has to decide uh, what which of the two photos is a better match right until we get uh an artificial intelligence uh, which will be able to judge instead of a human being until we have that technology we still need have to have a judge to analyze I understand, but Igor, my question was, yeah. then who generates, if, let's say, in a double-blind situation where the tasker also doesn't know what the photographs are, who then generates the future outcome target? In other words, decides that it's going to be a football match or it's going to be a, um, you know, uh, the stock market going up and down. How is that generated? Uh-huh, okay, uh, which you went to choose to predict? Uh, okay, uh, it, it, uh, this, uh, it, this can be selected by the tasker, or you, ha- you can have a list of 10 different events in a file, and then the computer can select one randomly. Ah, got it. Understood. Okay. Um, could it be used also uh, to predict, let's say, um, a, a non-sporting event, a non a uh, financial event, let's say, for example, the likelihood of a, of a war or a terrorist attack or um, um, uh, some sort of cataclysmic event? Yes, you can, you can uh, define any life event, but with ARV you just have to stick with few possible choices, like yes or no question, or it, it, it doesn't have to be, you know, two choices two possible outcomes. It can be three or four. ARV, in this example, we selected only two photos for two uh, outcomes. It can be event with three outcomes or four, but and this is called a multi-peak in ARV, but as, uh, as uh, when you have more photos, then it's harder to judge. You have to have more pictures, and for right. analysts, it's uh, harder to select one of the okay. uh, photos as a prediction. 
Now, Igor, could I have my my producer Albert follow up with you, and we could arrange at some、uh, time in the not too distant future an experiment where we have a remote viewer on your end, and perhaps one of the three of us here in studio in Toronto could play the role of Tasker, and we could set up an, an experiment. Yes,、uh, yes, yes. Sure, I I will uh, ask uh, one of my viewers. Who who wants to partic- participate? Yeah. Excellent. In the meantime, if people want to learn more about ARV, perhaps take a course. What should they do?、Uh, well, the folks can go to my website arv-studio.com.、Uh, there, there there are some examples of our work, of our hits, and explanation in more detail what ARV. They can look、uh, on Facebook for remote viewing community.、Uh, also on Google, they can find、uh, remote viewing teachers. Okay, I got、uh, I got to run, but it's arv-studio.com. arv-studio.com. Igor, my producer, will be in touch. Thank you so much for this. Okay, thank you, thank、bye. you for this interview, and take care. Bye bye. Bye bye. All right, thanks to Ian, Albert, and Ryan. Back next week, Bryce Sable. What if the Beatles had stayed together? And L.A. Marzulli, the elongated skulls of Peru. Until then, so long for now. Podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.